This begins the second major division of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Chapters 1 through 3 had their movements and their ebb and flow, and chapter 3 was its own idea, but that first section was encouragement. It was all encouraging and hello, how are you? We miss you from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now in chapters 4 and 5, we move from what you could call the encouragement section to the instruction section of the, of the book. Many of Paul's epistles are structured this way, where Paul will lay out an encouragement or he'll lay out some doctrinal principles, and then he will spend the rest of the book explaining, therefore, how ought we to live. And we're going to see in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, ethical instruction about how to live morally. We're going to talk about that today, as well as doctrinal instruction. And primarily that's going to be concerning eschatology, end times, prophecy, the rapture. And I'm very excited, of course, to get into that, but that doesn't mean the rest of it is any less important. It's part of what Paul said he wanted to do at the end of the last chapter, where he said he wanted to supply what was lacking in their faith. Paul had only been in Thessalonica a short time before they had to leave, and we read last week how Timothy had been able to reconnect them, and they're doing well, and they're walking with the Lord, but Paul is going to now give them some further instruction. And for these first eight verses, the focus is on sexual immorality. This was a problem in Thessalonica. It is a problem today, and it has been a problem in just about every culture and every place around the world. Because wherever there are people, there is this temptation. And we are no exception to that. And what's unique about some of these epistles, especially to the Thessalonians, for a Gentile audience, and there were Jews and Gentiles in Thessalonica, to hear the idea that worshiping God meant you needed to be sexually pure was a strange thing. Because for them to worship their gods, it was very permissive. In fact, there were some rituals that involved sexual acts with a priest or a priestess in order to properly worship their God. And Paul and Silas and Timothy are going to tie sexual purity to the worship of God, which is such a radical thing for them. We're used to hearing that. But even around the world in other places where they're not worshiping the Lord, it's very common for idolatry to be tied to sexual immorality. Romans chapter 1 makes that connection as well. This is a new thing. This is God's teaching. And they had that problem. We've got our own problems with what the Bible tells us to do as a culture. Hopefully not in this place, but it's still true. And all of this we're going to see is grounded in the idea of sanctification, which we've seen before. We talked about a week or two ago about becoming more holy as life goes on. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to work out in us. And orienting ourselves towards God not just ourselves. This is something that I, I noticed as we went through this that I maybe hadn't seen before, is while he's giving instruction on something that is so personal, he's grounding it in language related to God. He's going to talk about pleasing God, about knowing God, the justice of God, the call of God, disregarding God. And that's something that we need to introduce, if we have not done so already, into our moral lives, that we live for the pleasure of God. He's going to refer to two great qualities, holiness and honor, both towards God and towards one another. So today, as we look at this topic, it cannot be and it will not be just a polemic where we're going to wheel out a cannon and aim it out the door and say everybody out there is doing it wrong because it's more than that. 
It has to start with us. We have to examine ourselves first. It's far too easy to look at how somebody else is going really wrong and ignore how we are also going wrong, but maybe not as openly. We're going to remove the log from our own eye before we start looking at specks in other people's eyes, right? We ought to be sanctified because of what Jesus has done for us, and that's what Paul is going to say, and he's going to start with this topic of sexual immorality. So, let's read the first two verses of chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Okay, these verses open with the English word finally, which is a little funny because Paul is saying finally, and we've got two more chapters to go, so that is not just a a modern-day preacher's problem to say in conclusion and then move on. But actually, the Greek text there, he says, loipon un. So he's actually saying more than that or moving right along. It's not trying to conclude here, but he's, he's giving a transition. You might translate that furthermore. Like, since we know all this to be true, let's keep going. They ask and urge the Thessalonians to continue to walk in what they have received from them. So we've seen this a lot, that they keep calling them back to what they remember, to what they knew, what they had been told. And before this, it had all been doctrinal and obeying the Lord Jesus. But now he's also reminding them of the moral instruction that they were given when Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica. He tells them to walk in what you have received. We refer to our Christian lives as a walk. It's a great metaphor. You're walking down the path of life. So how are you walking? Jesus compared it to a narrow road or a wide road. And it's important for us to know that because if we have found God, it only makes sense that our lives will change. It's not just about that initial moment. It's not just about having the right doctrines or your moment of conversion. Moments of conversion are great. We love those stories. We remember them. We treasure those days. I love meeting people that know the the date and the hour and the place where they were saved when they gave their lives to the Lord. It's a special thing. But that's not it. There's a whole life that comes after that. Remember in the story Pilgrim's Progress, he finally gets to the gate and sheds his burden, but you've still got most of the book left because you've still got your whole life to live. And that's what it means to walk after Jesus Christ. I find it funny that there are people on all stripes of politics and even religion who get angry when you say that believing in Jesus means your life must change. Because they say it's just about your heart. It's not about what you do. It's not about how you live. It's not fair to tell people how to. But at the same time, you may be aware of this, you may not, both the left political wing and the right political wing are using metaphors that describe being exposed to something and not ever being able to go back. If you're on the left, you use a term called woke. The idea is, I've woken up, I've seen the way the world is, and I can't go back to sleep. I've got to do something about this. That's what it means to be woke. Now, on the right, you've got something called being red-pilled, which is a reference to the Matrix, where I'm going to see that the whole world is a program by taking this red pill. Same thing. I've seen these political ideas. I can't go back. I can't ignore it. I can't pretend that's not the case. So both sides agree that there are some things that you can learn and be exposed to that are so radical that they change you forever. But then we come to the cross and we say, ah, that's no thing. 
We have our own term, too. We call it being born again. I have been born again. I was dead, and now I'm alive, right? When you're baptized, we are buried in the likeness of Christ in his death and raised to walk in newness of life. It's the same thing. It's a walk. It's not just the moment. And he's emphasizing them, you've got to keep going. Keep doing what you've been told. And it's important for us to see here, Paul's not going to rebuke the Thessalonians so much in the first one. He's going to do that a little more in the second one. But it's not that they had a lot of problems that needed fixing, like Corinthians or Galatians. But he's still going to remind them. He says, just as you are doing to please God. Some of the older translations don't have that phrase. It's in our oldest and best manuscripts. But we've already kind of seen that attitude in the beginning that they were doing well. But he's trying to remind them. So for you, you might not be falling into any of these sins that we're going to describe today. But it's still good for you to remember and to keep going. And you see how he keeps using that, what you already know and what you remember. And he reminds them of what they ought to do. There's of how you ought to walk. Ought is the Greek word day. It also can be translated must. It's a word that implies necessity. It's like when Jesus said, I must go through Samaria, right? I must, I ought. It's the same idea. So this is not optional. <laughs> it's not optional to do what? He says to please God. To walk and to please God. There's another concept that we've got to make sure we retrieve and keep front and center as we walk out our Christian lives. It's not just about you. You coming to church and seeking the Lord and reading your Bible and all that, it's not just for you. You get all kinds of benefits and blessings, but that's not what it's all about. It's sort of like Christmas. We love getting presents, but we have to keep reminding ourselves it's not about that. It's about Jesus Christ. Same thing for this. We can't just think of our religion in terms of what pleases us. Now, we can even trick ourselves there. Or we say, no, 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 I don't serve Jesus to please myself. I, I'm always seeing how short I've fallen and how I've got to do better. That's true, but sometimes even that can be a way of, I go to church because I know it'll force me to discipline myself to do what I know I ought to do. That's selfishness just with another step added in. It's about pleasing God. Why? Two reasons. Number one, God is supreme. God is worthy of worship. It's his world. He built it. He built you. He knows how it works. He's the only one that is holy. He's the only one who is wise. He knows all things. So you ought to obey him because he's God. And number two, shouldn't we be overwhelmed with gratitude for what he did at the cross? Shouldn't you just be so overwhelmed? You know, it's like those old movies where somebody saved someone else's life, and so now I'm going to follow you for the rest of your life and take care of you. It's, it's like that. After what Jesus did for us, I, I can't. I can't go back. I'm going to do whatever he says. I'm going to try to please him and not myself any longer. So especially today as we're going to talk about sexual morality, it can't just be about you. It's about God himself. Now, if you call on Christ and then you live however you want, that's no kind of faith. Say, I believe in Jesus. I know all the stories. I know all the songs. I come every week. But then you go out and you live however you want. You don't love Jesus. John 14, 21, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Parents, you maybe know this, where your kids will tell you how much they love you, and then they go out and they flagrantly disregard exactly what you told them to do. And you're like, well, you say you love me, but you just went out and did that. Or a spouse, a wife or a husband will betray the other. Oh, but you know how much I love you. It's like, how can I believe that when you're living like this? It's the same thing with God. 
You are not an equal with God. You and Jesus are not on the same level. You are his subject. You are his subordinate. The Bible even says you are his slave. He's bought you with his blood and you are not your own anymore. Well, it's my life. Not if you're a Christian, it's not. Your life has been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And by the authority, he says, of the Lord Jesus, you have to walk as he walked. He says, you do so more and more. It's interesting to me that he used the word do, that you do so more and more, because the word is parasute. It means to abound. It means to overflow. He says that just as you are doing walking and pleasing God, that you abound in this, you overflow in this, that it characterizes your life, that I walk after Jesus. That people look at you and say, that guy is obsessed. He's a Jesus freak. Well, everything he does, he does it for Jesus' sake. That's what we're supposed to do. Pleasing him in all things. It's important for us to establish this relationship of authority at the beginning today. Because when we get into touchy subjects like this, we have all kinds of personal opinions and history and friends that are in the back of our head that we're concerned about and things we've read somewhere that all start to come into play. You've got to remember you are walking in obedience to Jesus Christ, to the supreme God of heaven. Now, if you have trouble understanding something, God is happy to answer that question. But if you want to dare to come into God's throne room and challenge him with your ideas, you should not expect to hear anything from the Lord. God's already shown us what is good in his word. And that's what this next verse lets us know. We're just going to read the first half for now because there's some important things to get into. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. We'll pause right there because that is an umbrella term that's going to refer to all the rest of the things that Paul is going to describe ethically and morally in this book. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What a weighty fraction of a verse. You know what God's will is. It's for you to be sanctified. If our desire is to please God, as we just said, it's crucial that we know what pleases God. I want to do what God wants. So what does God want? Lucky for us, the Lord has told us that. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul mentioned in verse 1 and verse 2 that they were urging them in the Lord Jesus, that they had given them instruction in the Lord Jesus. The apostles taught the Thessalonians what Christ wanted, what God wanted, and how to please him. We don't have any apostles of that caliber walking around today. So how do we know? How are we supposed to know? If only we had some sort of standard or measure with which to follow. Well, lucky for you, you're holding it. This is your Bible. The word canon, the word canon is a reference to a measure. It's a reference to a pattern or a standard to follow. The Lord had his prophets and apostles write down what he revealed to them so that we could have it for all time and to know what he said. We know the will of God. He's shown us the way in which we should walk. Now this verse here, I want to address a few things, and they'll be instructive, not just getting into a controversy, but there's been a little tug of war over this verse that I've been, I've been noticing and there's a few extreme positions to watch out for. Anytime you talk about the will of God, it seems like there's always a lot of people that have very strong opinions on it. And there's two things I want to address that use this verse. Neither one of them makes full use of Scripture. And that's always our goal, is to let the entirety of God's Word speak, not just our favorite verses. Now, on the one hand, 
You have some people who make so much out of seeking and finding God's will that they ignore verses like this, and you end up following whims more than the word. I give the example on Wednesday. It's like, Lord, if you want me to marry that woman, may that red light turn green. Well, the light's going to turn green sooner or later, so what, what's really going on? Or you, you're always asking for signs, and everyone says, well, I'm going to throw out a fleece. Listen, I think sometimes God does that, but you need to remember, when Gideon put out a fleece, that story was there to demonstrate his lack of faith, that God had already spoken to him. And he did it twice, and finally God said, would you knock it off with the fleece already? I've already told you what to do. Always seeking for something, and, and you start following. Have you ever met someone like this, or have you ever been this person yourself, where you're getting blown about by whatever's happening, and, oh, that must be God's will for my life. Now, someone like that, this verse reminds us that God himself has revealed, I would say, most of his will for you already. It's in the word of God. He's told you how to be. And most of the questions you have, there may be a specific answer from the Lord, but in most cases, God's already shown you how to act in such a situation. And so it's crucial that you know verses like this where he says, this is the will of God. Now, on the other hand, you've got some folks who despise the thought of seeking God's will. They think that it's wrong to do that. You should never ask God for his will. I've even heard this preached by somebody that I admire. But he said, look, people say, well, what's the will of God for my life? Well, it already says right there, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, that, that'll preach. That's kind of cute. But that doesn't really answer the question we're talking about here. All right? This is showing us that God has already revealed his will. But it's not saying that there's nothing specific to expect. What it's telling us is this is the base level. Before you start coming in and wanting to ask God questions, know what he's already said. Know what his commandments are. Know what the wisdom is that he's revealed. And follow that. But I do think that there's a mediating position between these two that is more biblical. I think, obviously, this is an example of one thing that is God's will in Scripture. This verse is not the totality of God's will for you. There's more details involved. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he's going to say it is the will of God that you are grateful. 2 Peter 3.9 says it is not the will of God that any should perish. There are other verses like this that tell you what the will of God is. So you can't just land on one and say, don't ever pray and find out what God wants. But you should know that first. But there's absolutely an important place for seeking God's will for your individual life. You know, the Bible tells you how to have a good marriage. The Bible does not have a Bible verse that tells you who you ought to marry. The Bible tells us that some are called to go and be workers in the harvest, and the rest of us should pray for them and support them. There's no verse that comes out and tells you specifically if you're supposed to be a worker or someone who prays. There is a place, especially in the book of Acts, we see it, of looking for the will of God for our lives. Now, it's funny to me because a lot of people that want to talk about how you should never seek God's will for your life are the same people that will stand up and give these wonderful testimonies how God called them to ministry. Now, what is that if not God revealing his will for your life? Now, I'm with you when you tell me we shouldn't just be bouncing around and, and following the, the traffic lights for God's will, okay? But we should have something deeper than that. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, and he speaks and reveals God's will to us. In Colossians 1 verse 9, Paul would say, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul says, we're praying for you that you would know exactly what God wants you to do. 
Ephesians 2.10 tells us that God has works prepared for us to walk in. God's got a plan. So is God going to keep the plan secret and then hold you accountable for not following it when he didn't even tell you what it was? God doesn't hide from us. Seek his word. Romans 12.2 says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Only never forget that God's spoken will to you is never going to contradict his written will. That's an important thing. Now, I've seen that so much. Well, I know the Bible says that I should not be living with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, but I prayed and God said it's okay. No, he did not. <laughs> he absolutely, well, that's just the will of God for my life. And a lot of times we like to tack the will of God onto any tough decision we want to make so that nobody can question us. Please don't do that. You know, I used to get on our high schoolers when I used to lead this ministry because they'd be dating some girl and they wanted to break up. Well, it's real easy. God told me I had to break up with you, you see. So it's not me. If it was up to me, we'd date forever. But Jesus says we've got we've to break up, so goodbye. So please don't do that. Just step up and say, hey, I, I don't think this is working out. Have a nice day. So in your life, too, be very careful with attaching the will of God to something that is not for sure the will of God. And if you're going to claim that something is the will of God and then back out of it later, that's a problem. Well, I, the Lord has called us to be here. And then two weeks later, actually, God's calling us somewhere. Well, what, stop using that word call. Just say we're, we're seeking and we're trying to find out. And we've not gotten definite direction from the Lord, but we sure do like it here. That's okay. Right? That's okay. But I do know that God does reveal his will to us, but he's always going to be in line with what he's already revealed. So important to, to say that. That had come up in my conversations with somebody recently, so I wanted to make sure we addressed it. But one thing we do know for sure is that God desires our sanctification, he says. The word is hagiasmas. Hagiazo means holy, to be holy. You've heard of the Hagia Sophia, which is that the holy cathedral of Sophia, of wisdom, right? Holification, that's what sanctification means. To sanctify means to holify, to make something holy. And there's two meanings to that word, sanctification. Number one, it means to be set apart. You have something that is sanctified for the Lord's use. You had the golden implements in the temple that were sanctified. They weren't be able to use for anything else. You remember the cups that Belshazzar drank from in the book of Daniel that they had taken from the temple? Those were sanctified cups for use in God's holy temple, and he used them to praise his gods, and the Lord judged him for it. Because that's not a common thing. That's a holy thing, right? That's a sanctified thing. And number two, it also means moral separation from all kinds of sin. So it doesn't just mean separation. It means separation for God's use, for holy use, for moral use. It is a good kind of separation. So when you talk about being a holy person, a priest was a holy person because he was separated from the common people. But if the priest was not also morally separated from the people, then everybody knew he was a hypocrite and got angry. Okay? So... Both of those things were done for you at the cross. God set you apart from common humanity. You were born again in Jesus Christ. He filled you with his Holy Spirit. And in God's eyes, you were morally separated from all your sin. The Lord does not see your sin anymore. Praise the Lord. So there was a moment when you were sanctified. Typically, we're going to use the word justified, but the Bible uses that language. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. He says, by his will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So there is a once for all moment of sanctification. Paul would use the term justification. We use the term conversion, maybe regeneration. 
there's a moment. But there's also a process that as you live out your life, you know. You ever read what the Bible says about you, and then you look at your own life? Like, that doesn't match up. That's the process of sanctification, where the Lord wants to form in you what he's already declared about you. God has already declared you to be free from sin. Now he wants the Holy Spirit to work in you to liberate you from sin. The process of sanctification. Greater separation, greater purity. Hebrews 10, 14, just a few verses later. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you have been and you are being sanctified. And if you want to add the future aspect into it, there will come a day where you will be sanctified forever in the Lord's presence. And that is his will for you. This is the will of God, your sanctification. He wants to set apart for himself a pure people whom he can use for his will. Titus would call them a people zealous for good works, separated from the world. That's what he desires. So knowing that, that God desires holiness in our lives, and knowing that we want to please him in all things, as we said at the beginning, you move on to the next verses, which give us specific examples of how to be sanctified. Before we move on from that, I, I do want to just add, if you've been seeking God's will for a specific decision in your life, maybe your career move or something like that, but you cannot obey God in these things, in the day-to-day -day already established things, don't be surprised if you don't hear anything new from the Lord. Because God's like, no, 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 we're going to deal with this first. I'm not going to try and bypass all of that. The Lord is too good of a father to do that. So if you've been praying and asking the Lord to reveal his will to you and he just won't, maybe there's something else that God would rather deal with first. But let's move on to verse 3 down to verse 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, so the first area of sanctification that Paul, Silas, and Timothy focus on is that we abstain from sexual immorality. I love how they just started right out the gate with the most controversial thing they could talk about. They could have started talking about love or anger or our speech. Nope, they're going to jump right in to sexual immorality. It's that important. You remember back in Acts chapter 15 when they were having that council because the Gentiles were getting saved. They didn't quite know what to do with them all. They ended up deciding Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas showed some great leadership. They're like, look, we're not going to add anything to these guys because God's already saved them. But they gave them a short list of things to do in order to maintain peace in the church. And that were just a good idea anyway. Remember abstaining from things strangled, abstaining from blood, things sacrificed to idols. And the fourth thing was sexual immorality. This has been universal teaching in the church since the first big meeting the church had <laughs> was about abstaining from those things. And by the way... One of the men that was called to take that decision from Jerusalem to Antioch was who? Silas. So Silas was the one they sent to deliver that message, and here he is reminding the churches of it. So you can see that not only was the decision made, but the missionaries that went out continued to teach those things. Now this word for sexual immorality, you know this maybe, is porneia. The Greek word for harlot or prostitute is porne. So Porneia is anything related to harlotry or prostitution, and of course you can hear it. It's where we derive our word pornography or pornographic. 
It's broader than just prostitution, even though it contains the word there. In a Christian context, specifically a New Testament context, when you see that word porneia, it refers to any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. It's unfortunate that the longer the years go on, the more qualifications we have to add to that, isn't it? Now, verse 4 and 5, I like this. He doesn't start out with all the stuff you shouldn't do. He starts by giving us a positive picture of what God intends sexual morality to look like in the church. That everyone knows how to control their own body. Literally there, it's possess his own vessel in holiness and honor. Now, that word, possess his own vessel, there is an interpretation by that. And if you, I don't think anybody would have a revised standard version here. That's a British translation mostly. But that was translated at once meaning to take a wife. So to possess his own vessel means to, to have your own vessel, which is your wife. But that seems like a very poor interpretation. <laughs> because while the words maybe could technically mean that, it seems very clear. Number one, he's not just writing to men. Number two, later on, they're going to call both the man and the woman a vessel of God. So you can't just say that the woman is the vessel. And number three, I fail to understand how getting married is going to prevent all kinds of sexual immorality. Right? This is all-inclusive, that everyone knows how to possess his own vessel, to control your body, it's a good translation, in holiness and honor. Possess your own vessel, control your own body. Self-mastery, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit, what's the last one is? Self-control. The ability to control what you do. To control your own body. And when we start talking about sexuality, we need that. That you should only ever use your body for holy and honorable purposes. It's important for us to know that. That in the Lord's house, it's holy and it's honorable for there to be proper sexuality in the marriage life. Hebrews 13.4 says that the marriage bed is undefiled. Because what an accusation that is often put out is the church is is anti-sex, we're anti-body, we are anti-pleasure, and it's all just about, you know, being straight-laced and, and never engaging that or never participating in that. That is not what the Bible says. Now, what happens is the world is, is so out of control that any thought of, of dialing that back or bringing in self-control it, it seems like incredibly restrictive. But Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 Solomon writes to his son, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That is not what the world thinks the Bible teaches. He says, be intoxicated always in her love. Right? <laughs> be intoxicated always in her love. Always. Don't ever get over it. He said, you should be crazy about your wife and crazy about your husband. That, that you should be delighting in one another at all times. God created the body. It is not evil. We have to know that. But it must be turned towards God's purposes and God's design. And within that, there is great joy and there is great freedom. Now, when the world says sexual freedom or sexual liberation... It means doing whatever you feel like doing. But that's not true freedom, is it? That's being bound. People who do whatever they feel like doing, those are not free people. 
Those are people who are in bondage. You know who do whatever they feel like doing? Drug addicts do whatever they feel like doing. Anytime they want to hit, they take one. They're doing exactly what they want, but are they free? They're not free. The same thing is true for somebody engaging in sexual immorality. And it's, you can see how the world is slowly, slowly, slowly waking up to that. I don't think it's going to get corrected unless revival comes, but they can see it. Paul calls that the passion of lust. It is the opposite of honorable self-control. That word for passion is pathos. You, you use that word pathos before. You think of a movie that has a tear-jerking scene, like, oh, that's, it's got some pathos to it. When you're giving a speech, you want to have an emotional appeal. It's got pathos. It means any strong emotion. Passion. Do you know something? That word for passion is only ever used negatively in the New Testament. It is only ever referred to negatively. He never talks about a good passion. Now, we sometimes use that word a little differently, just to be clear. You know, so I'm passionate about music or I'm passionate about my job. That's a little different than what we're talking about. When he refers to especially bodily or sexual temptation, passion is a bad thing. Why? Because we say, oh, the passion, we were swept up. We were carried away. We, we lost control. You're not supposed to do that as a Christian. You're supposed to always be under control. You're supposed to be obedient to the Lord. For us, why do we do this? Is it because we, because we hate people and because we hate people being happy? And we No. It's because we believe that sexuality is such a holy thing, such a wonderful thing, an honorable thing, that to turn it loose to all matter of perversion is a terrible thing. It's an awful thing to do, that you degrade something so wonderful. It's why the Bible restricts all sexual activity to marriage between a man and a woman. Now, even as we say that, maybe some of us say, that, that does seem kind of old-fashioned, though. Maybe it worked back in the day. Maybe it worked before, but times have changed. I, this is one I used to hear all the time that they say, well, you just got to get over it. People are gay now. That's the way it is. It's like, this is not a new thing. None of this is new. This has been, this teaching that Paul gave, this was countercultural then, and it's countercultural now. We've got to get that. We're not taking a culture and it, forcing it on someone else's. No culture likes this. No culture has ever liked this. Do you know, you, you maybe have heard of Demosthenes, the great Greek orator. Oh, what a wonderful speaker Demosthenes was. The founding fathers would write, I want to be a great speaker like Demosthenes. Or Hamilton or somebody would stand up and speak. Oh, it was like Demosthenes had returned from the dead. You know what he had to say? He said this about what it was like, what married life was like during Greek times. He said, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. He says, yeah, I'm married, but she's really there just, you know, to advance my social status and to have some children. But, you know, if I ever want to get a little crazy, I go out and I have a mistress that she doesn't know about. And if I'm ever just in a place where I need to take care of my body, well, you know what? I, we've got slaves for that. We've got concubines for that. That's sick. So we look, that's why we look back and want to glorify, oh, the classical period. No, thank you. The gospel came into the classical period and flipped it on its head. We say, well, no, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get back that old Victorian culture. <laughs> well, I read a biography of Winston Churchill where they talked a lot about that time and that period. And one of the things they said is it was very, very common that they'd have these big parties, these balls for all the, the rich and well-to-do and the lords and the ladies. And the servant's job 
was to find out who was going to whose room and who was cheating with whom, and then in the morning to make sure they woke them up in time so they could get back to their room so that nobody knew they were committing adultery with one another. And it happened all the time. And the reason they kept it secret was because they knew that the common people were having a revival of religion and they didn't want anybody to think that they were sinners or anything like that. So the idea that, oh, there were times before where this worked, but it doesn't work now. No, it's never been popular. And so in one sense, it's, it's not right for us to say, oh, the times are so bad today. They've always been bad. But I don't know that there's been a time, at least in our recent memory, where we have been so open and celebratory of our sexual deviance. It's, it's not a good thing. I hardly need to explain to you that. All kinds of evil is excused in the name of what? Passion. My desire, it's what I wanted. We were swept up. We're in love. You can't stop what we're doing. We're, we're meant to be together. Passion of lust, Paul says. The only rule our culture has now is there has to be consent. As long as they both say it's okay, it's allowed. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's an insufficient rule. Do you know why? Because it is impossible to restrict that rule. If the only rule is that as long as they're consenting, they can do whatever they want, well, where does that end? Where, does it end with animals? Why not? Does it end with kids? The church has been sounding the alarm on that for, for a long time, haven't we? We're talking about how crazy we were. Ridiculous. That will never happen. And now the stuff you're seeing today frightens us. And thankfully, it still frightens the world too. But where does it stop? As long as they're consenting, who cares? It's not a good rule. Fornication. That's having sex before you are married. I mean, that's, that just happens. That happens everywhere. And people just don't talk about it and do it secretly. Pornography, of course, is pervasive. Adultery is excused. Now, cheating is still bad, but that we always want to try and come in and sympathize. I mean, come on. I mean, she was in a bad marriage. It wasn't good. And, you know, she, she hadn't been taking good care of him, but she's... Marriage is minimized, right? We, what do we even need marriage for anyway? You hear that one? I don't know why we need a piece of paper to tell us that we're in love with one another. There again, passion. You hear it, right? Homosexuality is celebrated. Marching down the street cheering and waving flags and getting angry at people that dare to question that. Even gender is trivialized. You know, there's no such thing as a man or a woman anyway. Everybody just do whatever you want. In the name of what? Passion. Well, deep down in my heart, this is what I feel and this is what I want. That's not a good reason to do anything, first of all. Secondly, that's not what God has told us to do. These things are shameful. They dishonor the body. Talk about how the Christians are just so anti- reality and antibody and anti-sex. Th those things are degrading to what God has created. They dishonor your partner. They dishonor the family. They dishonor God. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality like Joseph. Remember Joseph? Potiphar's wife grabbed him and she's like, my husband owns you. You are going to sleep with me. And Joseph ran and he ran so hard it ripped his shirt. because He's like, no way, I'm not doing this. That's fleeing sexual immorality. Every other sin, it says, a person commits is outside the body, but a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. There you go. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That is the Christian's view of sex. It's not just a physical necessity, like sleeping 
or eating. It's a spiritual thing. It's meant to glorify God. It's meant to honor men and women both. Now, the excuse that I hear a lot, and maybe this is more on the male side, is people say, well, listen, we've all evolved, and there is an evolutionary drive in men to sleep with as many partners as he can. So it's really not good for us to restrict that because that's, you see how convenient that is? Well, it's not me. Science says that I'm allowed. Trivializes something wonderful and just turns it into something base. I urge each and every one of you to commit yourself anew to sexual purity. Hopefully you guys are all walking in that already. But you know what? If you've stumbled or even mentally you've, you've been thinking about something, you've been entertaining the thought of that woman or that man finally making a move on you in your mind, you've got to recommit yourself to the Lord. You know God. He says, you're, you're not a Gentile that does not know God. Don't be obsessed with passion. And you've always got to be so passionate all the time. If we're going to obsess over passion, it disallows us to be sensible. And actually look at things with, in the clear light of day and decide in the Lord's will what is right. What does that mean? I'll give you some practical things here. You say, well, I'm never, I'm never going to have sex before marriage. I'm never going to cheat on my wife. But what do we do? We stimulate ourselves visually or through our music or whatever it is or through the things we read or the people we talk to to where we are so intense and so tempted and so hyped up that it's impossible. It's like what so the song of Solomon says, not to awaken love until it pleases. You're bringing your body to a place through the things you watch or listen to that it was never intended to go outside of marriage. So I'm never going to do the thing. You've got to stop bringing yourself to the brink. Well, I'm going to stop right there. It's not how it works. It's a dangerous thing. That means you've got to evaluate what you're listening to and watching and reading and the friends that you keep. I think we probably ought to be encouraging our sons and daughters to be marrying younger. The average marriage age is pushing closer and closer to 30, and we are expecting to tell our young children to go through the most turbulent and hormonal years of their lives and not to be able to engage in the, these things. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's good. I think it's a recipe for disaster. And there's individual cases involved in that, but we in the church need to have good sense when it comes to these things. Married couples need to stop keeping themselves from each other. The Bible talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7 very clearly. He says the husband does not have the rights to his own body and the wife does not have the rights to her own body. The way that the Lord has enabled us to avoid sexual temptation is that those needs are being satisfied in marriage. And so if there is some sort of game going on between a husband and wife where this is not happening, you, you are doing a disservice to your partner. We've got to take care of that. And again, that doesn't sound very passionate, does it? But no, it's holy and it's important. Here's something that I don't think any of us are doing here, but it's a cultural thing we've got to work on and we've got to foster. We've got to stop posting pictures of ourselves online where we're barely dressed. Are we crazy? What are we doing that for? Men and women both. You know that the, the statistics are saying that the women who are engaging in pornography is almost at parity with the men who are doing that? It's not just a male problem. Oh, we were just at the beach. Oh, we were just working out. Stop doing that. You are tempting your brothers and sisters in Christ. Stop it. And here's another thing. We've got to start fostering a positive view of masculinity and femininity. It can't just be, well, the, the kids are, I don't understand what they do. They're going to go and go off their own way. Stop doing that. Show your son what it means to be a man. 
Show your daughter what it means to be a woman. I don't think they want to hear it. I promise you they do. I promise you they do. Or they're going to go off to college, they're going to go off with some friends, and they're going to have somebody who will tell them and is willing to show them what it's like to be a man or a woman, and then they're going to come home and you're not going to recognize them. We've got to be fostering that in the church, which is why we do men's and women's events separately. It's one of the reasons, so that our daughters and sons can come and be around godly men and around godly women and imitate that later on in their lives. I don't think it's even possible to live this way anymore. I promise you it is. I promise you. There are people in this room that have walked that out and are walking that out to this day. Help each other, guys. Come alongside one another. And don't celebrate what the world celebrates. It's not about passion. It's about holiness. And it's a wonderful thing to be holy. But we've got to start speaking that language. This is the will of God for your life. Holiness within yourself and honor towards others. And at least in this place, we're going to stick to what the Word has said. It doesn't matter what they do out there. Amen? Verses 6 and 7. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Bringing it back to God, for He is the one that we aim to please, right? He sees us. He desires us to live up to our calling. And do you see what he says there? Not to transgress and wrong one another in this matter. To transgress and wrong one another sexually. You are to consider each other, not just ourselves in these matters. It is a great lie that the world puts out there that consensual sex between two adults doesn't hurt anybody. That is a lie. That is not the case. Paul says it right here. You are transgressing and wronging one another. And you know, as I mentioned before, you see how the world has pushed this free sex for years and years and decades and decades, but now they're starting to realize, you know, the women are starting to feel really cheapened by this. And you know, the, the men are becoming aggressive and are not committing to marriage of this, and the, and the kids are not doing well. And you know what? We, we really ought to, you really ought to make sure that it's a very formal kind of consent. And really, you should try to stay with one person as long as possible. It's like you're reinventing marriage. Because they're realizing that this hurts. When you sleep around a bunch, you're, you're ripping your soul into pieces. When you, when you cheat on your husband or wife, you're betraying them. You're betraying their trust. You're stealing what is not yours. Well, we're not married. Yeah, but you will be someday. You're robbing what belongs to your wife or your husband in the future or their husband or wife in the future. And it says that the Lord sees that and he's an avenger. The Lord takes pity on the betrayed spouse and the discarded one that thought that they were engaging in something beautiful and instead was just cast to the side. The Lord sees that. But we do what we do, not, not just because we're afraid of God's wrath, although we should be, but out of respect for God's high calling to holiness. We aim to please Him. We don't just want to do it because we're afraid. We do it because it's right. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, I didn't hurt anybody when, we, when I did that. Yeah, but the Lord saw it and you broke his heart and you're going to stand in judgment for it someday. Looking for God's will in your life? Well, I can tell you it's not for you to be having an affair. It's not to be sleeping around or any such thing like that. That's clear cut and obvious. We can weep during worship all we want, but if we do not then walk in obedience to God's commandments, have we really been changed? 
It's astonishing to me, especially on the younger side, but it's not just the younger crowd, how they'll come to church, worship, weep, bow before the Lord, and then turns out they're going to go home with their boyfriend or girlfriend that they're living with outside of marriage. That doesn't affect your soul somehow? Paul would say, you need to examine yourself and see if you're really in the faith or not. Honor God, honor yourself, honor your neighbor in all these things. Now, if it embarrasses you to think of sex in that way, then perhaps you need to fast and pray and ask for the Lord to renew your mind until you start thinking of things His way. Bringing it home, verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. That's an important point to remember. And Paul makes this point a lot. These are not his opinions. They're not my opinions. This is God's Word. If you disagree with the Bible's take on marriage or sex, or lust, or gender, or anything like that, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with God himself. At the beginning of this chapter, what did he say? He called their attention to remember what I've passed on to you in Christ Jesus. When you're stuck, you go back to what you learned before. You go back to the standard, the canon, remember? Every society deviates from this in some way, and every society thinks that they're the first ones to do it. Well, you know, the Bible says that, but I don't think I like what the Bible has to say about that. Because it keeps me from indulging my passion. Well, the Bible's already talked about that. Now, we do pretty well on some things. We do pretty well on polygamy in our culture. But we're slipping on so many other things, aren't we? Romans 1, 24 and 25. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Well, I'm not worshiping any idols. Yeah, but are we worshiping ourselves? Are we worshiping our own bodies, our own desires? Worshiping that, that sexual act as, as something that is the most important thing in life? That, that's just the same kind of gods and goddesses that they were worshiping in the Old Testament, except we don't have a statue that we bow down to. We've stripped it of everything spiritual and wonderful and reduced it just to passion. And the Bible tells us if you're just going to chase passion, you're going to go after what the Bible calls strange flesh. And the longer you're seeking that passion, you're going to go after stranger and weirder things in order to satisfy that passion. And you've got to watch out for that. You deny God his rights over you. But listen, I know most of you here, you want to serve God with all your heart. You're here because you love Jesus. And you say, well, I'm not doing any of that, but it's still a struggle. Well, I would urge you to find where in your life you are letting the world pour its influence into you that makes it difficult for you to accept this teaching. You say, I just don't know, because what about that thing? You've got to cut that stuff off. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. If your Netflix subscription causes you to sin, delete it and send somebody else your password. If your Facebook profile or Instagram account causes you to sin, delete it. What do you need it for? If that friendship causes you to sin, say, we can't hang anymore. This isn't good for me. If driving home that way causes you to sin, don't drive home that way anymore. And call your wife as soon as you get in the car so she knows that you're on your way. The happiest people in the world are those who can engage in intimacy with their spouse without any guilt or shame like Adam and Eve before the fall. Don't you want that? Even statistically, they say that the people who have, were married young and have been monogamous their whole lives are the happiest people in this department. Well, it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> well, of course. That's what the Bible says. If I'm not mistaken, it was, they did a study, and it was Orthodox Jews and Evangelical Christians reported being the most satisfied in their sexual and married lives. 
Because we're doing what God said. God knows. He's not keeping things from us. That was the lie in the garden, wasn't it? God's keeping something good from you. But in reality, the Lord's like, I know better. I know what you need. I know what you want. And you can have no guilt and no shame in this if you will listen to the Lord. Now, this might seem to be a strange kind of Sunday message, but it's in God's Bible for a reason. The Lord puts passages like this that make us uncomfortable and squirm and you don't want to meet my eyes when I'm preaching for a reason. Because we need it. And if we can't talk about this in the church and address it head on in the church, the world has no problem talking about this stuff. The world has no problem speaking clearly and explicitly and graphically about it. So if we can't speak with honor and respect about some things that make us uncomfortable, we're going to be in serious trouble. Are you seeking after honorable self-control in Christ Jesus? After all that Jesus has done for you, and because you know that he knows best, ought we not to obey him, not just out of gratitude, but out of good sense, because he knows better than we do? It's all about pleasing God, about walking with God. His calling to holiness, his calling to honor. Disdain immorality, Christian. You ought to have a disdain for those sins in yourself. We have pity and we have love for those that are caught up in those things. And we pray for them and we love them and we weep for them when we pray for them at night. But when it comes into our house, we disdain it because we say, I want nothing to do with that. There is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. That's the best part. If you have been caught up in these things, even up to this day, there is forgiveness to be found at the foot of the cross of Jesus. It's a sanctifying process. He's already told you that you're holy, but he wants to spend the rest of your life making you holy so that when you stand before him on that glorious day, he'll be able to look at you and see no stain and no shame. He'll only see his son, Jesus Christ, shining through you. Set aside any entangling sin and let's move forward into the marvelous light, the Bible calls it, of Jesus Christ. There's no bondage there. There's no shame there. There's no fear. It's just joy and peace forever.